What's up, family? Welcome back to the Stop Sinking Show. You know how they say that it is not the thing that happens to you, but how you react to it? It sounds like a cliche thing. It is a cliche thing. But I didn't realize how deep this rabbit hole really went and how true it really was. And this is usually brought up when our reaction is more knee-jerk and it doesn't seem like it's fully in our control. But there are many times where we deliberately choose our reaction to something and almost consciously choose to degenerate things. We choose hell. Choose to make things worse than they already are. Are we always conscious of that choice? Probably not. So again, choice implies full consciousness. So let's use this word choice loosely. It's hard to trace back your behavior and thinking to a single point in time where you made a choice. So whether it was a singular moment that began a pattern that we are not aware we continually perpetuate daily, there is some truth to the saying that nothing happens to you without your permission. On some level, we allow it. Then we react in accordance to what we create. Then we give ourselves permission to suffer. It's not what happens to you, it's how you react to it. And I know there will be some inner resistance to hearing this, that we began a pattern, that we're continually perpetuating ourselves daily, that we actually play a part in it. I mean, what did I do to choose this current tragedy in my life? How did I choose to lose a loved one or have someone I care about battle illness? How do I have a choice? How did I create and give permission to this circumstance to exist? Why would I want that for myself? So let me clarify what I mean. There is a separation between our inner world and our outer world. And in times of difficulty, we lose the perspective of that. And those two things begin to merge and seem to move in lockstep. Meaning we can no longer tell the difference between what is happening outside and what is happening inside. Especially during the most tragic and trying of times. We lose the awareness of this distinction even more. It is clouded deeply by the fog created by our circumstance, and our emotions are at the mercy of our senses. We lose this power over to the load created by what we see, what we hear, which grips within it our feelings and then starts dictating our reactions. We stop seeing the separation between who we are and what we are going through. We become the circumstance. We call ourselves depressed. We become the suffering, become the torment. We lose our identity within it. It becomes one with what is happening. And again, to clarify, this fragile and subtle thread of connection between the happening, the experience, and the experiencer 
is where the power lies and hides. That we aren't the suffering, but the sufferer. Not the torment, but the tormented. And in again, identifying an I in it, an individual, the you that is going through something, not the you that is the thing that you are going through, where the power can be regained and the permission found. I'll tell you what got me thinking about this. If you heard my 50th celebration episode, you know a bit of how this story starts. And I alluded to something that lends to expanding on this. So the past two, three years have been difficult for me, but I'm an eternal optimist. I tend not to become overly emotional and overly involved with what difficulty my life experiences. Of course, the past two, three years, and especially the past 10 months have tested my structure, what I'm made of. But even 10 months ago, when I heard my father had a cancer diagnosis and had to undergo a major surgery, which caused me to leave everything in the States and move my life to India for who knows how long, an undetermined period of time. Even then, I came here with my sense of eternal optimism. The past few years didn't break me despite the daily ups and downs as a natural person would experience. I always get back on course and work on something productive to move my life forward and, again, not get overly reflective and sulky. I tend not to wallow in my misery because I've seen in my past how deep I can take my own misery to the point of unbearable physical and mental pain, and I don't venture down that road. Short of keeping myself completely numb, I haven't discovered any utility in staying in negative emotion for long periods of time. It doesn't serve any purpose and robs me of energy that I need for active projects I'm working on. So I try to be as even keel as possible. I literally optimize my entire body chemistry to be conducive to working. That includes what I eat, what time I eat, what I drink, watch, and it definitely extends into what I think about and having as much grip on what I think about as possible. There's a reason why this show is called Stop Sinking, Managing Thinking, Overthinking, and finding ways to improve areas in my life where I don't manage that thinking as well. And what I, and it's what I feel to be of principal priority for growth, managing my thinking, and what I pursue the most, what I'm fascinated by the most. So as an eternal optimist, a possibilist who tends to be as pragmatic as possible, be forward thinking, you can imagine my surprise and also the disassociation with my own identity when I found myself over the past few months suffering unbearably. If you follow the journey of this show, some of that struggle has been documented from feelings of loneliness to downright despair. I didn't realize this until a few days ago that I have been identifying 
with the circumstance me and my family are in. And like I mentioned before, I didn't realize that my optimistic identity, what I knew of myself, had dissolved into identifying with the circumstance that I became the suffering of my father. I became the uncertainty of his existence. I became the slow to heal and time-dependent progress in peace to match the environment I am in. I lost the me, the I in what is happening. I lost my resilience. My emotional state moved in lockstep to the day-to-day whims of what I see, the pain I witness, and the unrecoverable loss of life quality. And although I can't trace this back exactly to sequence of events that led me to losing myself in what's happening now, a few days ago, I recalled some key sentiments that I recognize as having lent to this dissonance from my past unshakable self to this new volatile spirit. A few months into being here, I started to feel guilty for the peace I have, for the optimism that I maintain, for the work I am able to continue to do and charge forward on with blinders. I thought to myself, my father is suffering in the room next door. He's going through treatment. He's sick. He has limited time. And here I am, unaffected, just sitting in the room next to his on my laptop, working, watching videos, texting friends, on social media, and just going about my life like nothing is happening. I felt guilty and insensitive, and I started thinking there was something wrong with me, that maybe I don't feel enough, that maybe I was numb. One of my close friends who was a caretaker for his father's terminal cancer, I remember in those first few months being emotionally torn and telling him about this guilt I had been feeling. What makes me think I can just go on about my life? Even though I'm here with my father, shouldn't I be taking it more seriously? Shouldn't I feel some sort of weight? Shouldn't there be some consistent gloom I should feel at all times to remind myself the seriousness of the situation? It was almost like I proposed an aspirational identity of someone who in the same shoes would be more in touch with what is happening. And I didn't think I was. And what I realized a few days ago is that I subsequently started to move in the direction of that aspirational identity. I then started to maintain the gloom. I took on the job of creating that weight. I created all the seriousness and misery to match the circumstance. I hadn't been fully aware in the midst of now practicing deep suffering that this aspirational identity created, that I had played this part in replacing my past optimistic outlook. I had no idea I was doing that myself. That out of guilt, 
I chose suffering. I made myself suffer. I looked for other people's interpretations of what I'm going through and let it feed this suffering identity. One of my friends said, this is a dark time. And even though I don't speak this way or think this way or have ever seen things this way, I started to lean into the darkness because I thought that at a time like this, this is how it should be. And I should consider it a dark time that maybe he was right. Maybe it was a dark time. And then I took it upon myself to perpetuate the darkness. I thought I should be suffering and thought there was something wrong with me for not suffering enough. That the witnessing of my father's suffering could only be validated by meeting him there in it. The only way I could prove to myself that I felt it. So after months of having created this self-inflicted hell, I mean, going through all the motions of depression, angst, anger, discontentment, and despair, after having to battle my thoughts daily, waking up with a heavy notion of negativity daily, all of which is so foreign to what I remember of myself, after having spent the time in the self-created darkness, I've decided to flip on the light. Where I rediscovered the theme of this episode, that we have within us the power to switch, to switch on the light. Having discovered how deep in suffering can be created by my own misguided guilt, how I can choose so vehemently to indulge in the pit, I recovered that sense of self who also created optimism and positivity, which at the time I misnamed and misjudged as insensibility or insensitivity to my father's situation. And in the light, I'm able to see a few things again that I wasn't able to see for the past few months. One that was eloquently pointed out to me is that you can recognize someone's pain, make them feel that it is seen without having to meet them there in it. That you can remain at peace, see them, but not reach for them there, and instead serve as a rock that they can reach for instead. That your sense of serenity is not an offense to the seriousness of a situation. I mean, when I first came here, I literally came here to add life to the house, to be active, to be at peace, to be working out, to just stay busy, to be happy and full of good energy. And by meeting and matching the suffering I see, I fail to accomplish that. In the state of suffering, I painted the dark narrative over everything. Our capacity to create hell is a bottomless pit. In my suffering state, not only do I not add the vitality and vibrance to the environment I had originally set out to, I also started to use the suffering as a basis for what I couldn't do, couldn't start. Like I said in my last podcast that lent to this, 
I thought my day-to-day didn't lend to me doing this podcast, not realizing that I was creating that scenario. I painted it as the cause of so much discomfort, so much of my own discontentment. But without the realization, I thought the suffering was just happening to me. Like I'm a victim of circumstance. Like I'm the one going through the disease. Like fate had dealt me a bad hand. The depths of suffering I created robbed me of this perspective of separation as the sufferer. And definitely hid and blinded me from the fact that I was the one creating it. I was just deep into the act of behaving how I thought I should be behaving going through such a difficult time for my family. I've never been through this before. I've never had a parent go through cancer before. So I started to act out the way I thought I should be behaving. Miserable. And I lost the me in it. The me that is the basis of the capability that even brought me here in the first place. Needless to say, I learned a lot through this exercise of acting out misery over the past few months. I learned first that I have to trust my own innate emotions. That if I am someone who is composed during chaos, that it isn't a flaw in my nature and instead is probably a strength I've developed over time. Maybe I'm compensating for something. Maybe it's a defense mechanism for past hurt. But there's something valid in it. I learned I can't aspire to any circumstantial identity, any identity to match the circumstance, that there is no right way to be, no matter the difficulty. That I don't have to consider the times dark if I don't view the world in that way. That I don't have to mourn or can mourn on my own accord and my own time frame. That I don't have to suffer any more than I normally do. And to not look for reasons to suffer when I'm not. To match some false ideal. Some aspirational identity. Of how I think I should be in a certain circumstance. Who has the manual on how to behave when your, when your father is going through cancer? I also learn about what immense power we have to create hell and create heaven. And words fail me to explain how low I have gone over the past few months. And to think that I had a choice in coming out of it. More so that I first had the choice to create it strikes me in the face. I would not wish my experience of my mental state on anyone. And it makes me sad to think about the damage that I have done to my body and how much I've probably aged myself with the high levels of stress that I had a hand in creating over the past few months. I learned you have to be careful about what you admire because you acquire what you admire. 
be careful on what you set your sights on and be careful on what you emote into the universe as admiration because you will move towards it. You may admire the identity of suffering, a victim state, a struggling artist, and will do all you can in your life to create a reality to match it. We don't believe we have that much creation power, but we are cut from the same cloth as the great creator. We create, but we forget that we have the power to do so most of the times. We don't credit ourselves with the power of creation as much as we should. And because we fail to credit ourselves with it, we also don't recognize that much of the world around us is of our creation. That even though I didn't direct the tragedy towards my life, that I do direct its effect on my life. And that I can exacerbate the destruction by emphasizing and exercising misery. And then once your sights are set on suffering, you will create it in everything like a loop. You will see it in everything. And then will want to run away from all that you've created, which in turn creates even more suffering and feeds the loop. We live in a world that wants us to indulge in our emotions this way. So our emotions are weaponized and used against us and used for an agenda. Everything is sensationalized. We identify with our traumas. We repost and reshare our limiting beliefs. We keep ourselves trapped in the comfortable misery we have grown so familiar with. We congregate around our traumas. We build groups of people who support us and maintain us in our darkness. Not the opposite. Because they themselves are trapped and don't know that there's a way out. And I can't help but feel so blessed that I recalled my sense of self and I snapped out of it. Or I wonder how long before the misery would be more familiar and more comfortable than the distance, peace, in memory that I used to have, that I can feel again. I would have probably acted out this pattern until it became more and more ingrained and harder to manage. We have a choice. I don't have any questions today. Just don't suffer unnecessarily like me. Life is full of tragedies. Don't make a bad thing worse. Don't pick at your wounds and don't cut deeper just to feel. Allow yourself and your healing to be unique to you. Let yourself be at peace in scenarios other people are disturbed in. Nothing is wrong with you. Remain steady and allow others to rise to meet you out of their suffering. You are in charge of how you feel. Select serenity instead of suffering. I love you, family.